Why can we sing that song? That his blood will never lose its power for me. Why do we, how can we, how can we sing that? Well, what comes to mind first and maybe the most obvious is that I'm not perfect. I'm, I'm not always going to think right, say right, do right. I'm going to need to be forgiven. And I'm not going to reach a place in this life where there's, there's no struggle within myself, no, no struggle with sin. So as long as Jesus lives, the death couldn't hold him, grave couldn't hold him, he lives, and he lives to forgive. He lives that his blood may continue to wash us and cleanse us and keep setting us free from the junk of this world and of this life and of within us. He lives, therefore he forgives. If we, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. That's just, it's just been good already this morning. I'm so glad it's Sunday. So glad it's Sunday, finally. And we'll get to be together in the house of the Lord. And I want you to take your Bible, please, and open it with me to a book in the Bible that we haven't visited in a while, but it's worth us knowing exactly where it is and some of the powerful words that are recorded there. Second Chronicles. It's one of the historical books. Um, Second Chronicles, and there are some things said in chapter 7 that we will look back at in a minute, but this is chapter 17. We'll start, and we're going to head toward chapter 20. Trust me, the Lord is saying to us. Trust me. Trust me. Trust me. Right where you are right in the middle of whatever is going on in your life, especially in the places where you're struggling or maybe you're afraid or maybe confused, not knowing what is the next step to take, not knowing if you're supposed to make a change or not make a change, supposed to do something or not something. Trust me, he says. Trust me right there. Trust me right there this morning. Trust me. Uh, that means that, that word trust, to, to lean on, to hand over to. I love this one. To have confidence in. To trust in the Lord means to have confidence in the Lord. The good news is he knows how weak we are sometimes in those areas and circumstances can happen. We can't see the invisible, we just see the visible. And sometimes it can seem like those visible things are just tearing away, firing away at the places of trust and confidence that we would have. Because we can't see the end from the beginning like it says the Lord can see the end from the beginning. And that's why Jesus would say, I'm sending you another helper. I'm going to be taken from you, but there's going to be one to come back. 
I'm the same essence, the same, in fact, my person, just invisibly, the Holy Spirit. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. Jesus is the Spirit. The Spirit is the, is the presence of Jesus without the body of Jesus. And Paul would say, it is Christ in me, the Spirit of Christ in me that is my hope of glory. And he says, I can do all things through the one who's giving me strength. So where I'm needing hope, where I'm needing trust, we don't have to look within ourselves to try to generate that trust. We just simply need to cry out to the Lord, Lord, I need your helper to help me. I need some help from the helper this morning. Lord, by your spirit, help me to trust you. Help me to lean on you. Help me to be able to rely on you. Help me to be able to have confidence in you. As he calls for that in us, we want to respond with the trust and the confidence. Today, it just seems like he's saying to us, trust me when the odds are stacked against you. Trust me when the odds are against you. Anybody ever felt like that? Anybody ever felt like you were in a fight you just probably couldn't win? So why even try? It, it, could be, it could be something at work, political structures at work, social structures as they are at work, people as they are. How, how, what, what, am I, what am I doing here? I, I, it's a fight I can't win. Medically, maybe. Trust me. When it looks like the odds are stacked against you, family, with ones you love and care about. It just, it just seems like they've already got opinions. They already have things in place that they're going to implement. I don't know, there's, there's, how can I stop it? Into that, the Lord would say, you trust me even when it looks to you like the odds are stacked against you. And you know why he can say that? Because he doesn't have any odds against him. There are no odds against the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. There, there is nothing, there is nothing that is his competitor. There is nothing that is his challenger. He's the undisputed heavyweight champion of control and leadership and love for his children, no matter what. Now this story in 2 Chronicles 17 regarding a young king, 35 years old, when he ascended the throne, taking the place of his father, Asa. He ruled for 25 years, and then he, he died. 35 years of age, Jehoshaphat. How about a name like that? <laughs> Jehoshaphat. I think you'd name a cat Jehoshaphat, but you wouldn't name, oh, excuse me, all you cat lovers, but you, you, would, you wouldn't name a king. You surely wouldn't name a king. Jehoshaphat. Well, the thing about these Bible names is that some of them are this long, but part, each of the parts of that name means something, and his name had significance. So I want you to, let, let's pick Jehoshaphat's life up in chapter 17, 2 Chronicles chapter 17, starting in verse 3. And the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he followed the example of his father David's earlier days 
and did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father, followed his commandments, and did not act as Israel did. So the Lord established the kingdom in his control, and all Judah bought tribute to Jehoshaphat, and he had great riches and honor. And look at verse 6. And he, 35 years of age, he took great pride in the ways of the Lord and again removed the high places and the Asherim from Judah. The Baals, the Asherim, were Canaanite fertility gods. It was a cult worship, a pagan worship, a false god, demonically driven worship of, of um, and, and the, the sexual orgies were a part of what they would do. When they, Israel came into, the 12 tribes came into the land of Canaan, were to dispossess the people. They, they did a fairly good job of that, but they would at some parts and at some points leave some remnants of those old Canaanite religions alive and active in parts of the land. Jehoshaphat understood the significance of the Lord's command. You, you rid the nation of all of that. Don't allow it. And as he ascended the throne, there were still some pockets active in that way. And so he just took them on. And he, he cleansed the land in that regard. Israel, as a nation, had been divided into two nations by this time. Solomon, after Solomon's death, there was King David. There was Saul, then David, then Solomon. When Solomon died, the kingdom split. The southern kingdom was spoken of as, as Judah, the kingdom of Judah, and the tribe of Benjamin, tribe of Judah and Benjamin, were a part there in the headquarters in Jerusalem. But the northern kingdom kept the name Israel. The southern kingdom, for the most part, for the longest period of time, stayed true to the worship of the Lord, the one true God. But the northern kingdom gave themselves to just about anything that they wanted to worship. They reincorporated the Canaanite worship and all the false gods. The one true and living God, they just treated as one of several options. So they had this pantheon of gods that they would worship. And as a result of that, the judgment of the Lord came upon them because he just had to lift his favor off of them and his presence away from them. And, and they, they got what they had coming to them by the choices that they had made. Judah on the other side, where Jehoshaphat was, ruling as the king, and particularly true to his leadership at this point in time, were determined we're going to stay true to the God of our fathers. We will honor him. We will look to him. We will seek him. We will follow his commandments as best we can. And that was, that was his heart. That was Jehoshaphat's heart says in verse 10, now the dread of the Lord was on all the kingdoms of the lands which were around Judah so that they did not make war with Jehoshaphat. The reason the nations around didn't mess with, with Judah and with the southern kingdom and with Jehoshaphat the king is because they were scared, they were afraid, they dreaded what would happen to them if they did. It's amazing how, uh, you know, it, it, this is spoken of as the dread of the Lord. He, he's not always known as the God of love and the God of kindness and the God of tenderness and the God of mercy and forgiveness. That in order to keep bad people, in order to, in order to keep the enemies of the Lord's people at bay, he, he may just see fit to show, show himself in such a measure that they're scared. 
They're scared if they do something. The, the fear or the dread of the Lord is not described as a bad thing. It was described as a necessary thing to keep the enemies of the Lord's people away from them so that peace could come. So I just wanted to throw that in, you know, keep that in mind. It was the dread of the Lord on all the kingdoms of the lands which were around Judah that caused them not to make war with Jehoshaphat. You come over a little bit further in chapter 19 and something else he did that was very significant. He's a head of state. He's a governmental leader. He's not the prophet Jeremiah or Isaiah. He's not particularly a religious man. He does not have a, a churchy kind of vocation. He's a governmental leader. He is a head of state. He's a commander of armies. He's the, he's the head over the legislative branches and the judicial branches to the degree that they existed. He was a king. He would be the equivalent of a president, in a sense, as being a head of state. But notice what he, what he does from his bully pulpit. Verse 5, chapter 19. He appointed judges in the land and all the fortified cities of Judah city by city. And he said to the judges, this is an executive order given to the judges that he appointed. Consider what you are doing. For you do not judge for man, but for the Lord who is with you when you render judgment. Now then let the fear of the Lord be upon you, the respect for the Lord, the reverence for the Lord be upon you. Be very careful what you do. For the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or the taking of a bribe. He spoke that to the judges. You talk about completely blurring the lines of separation between church and state. This is it. Here's the head of the state dictating, determining, directing the judges don't you worry about pleasing men. You be concerned about pleasing God. When you render judgment to men regarding men, you have as your first concern that which is considered as right in the sight of God. So be it. As the judge, judges were given direction directly by the king. And they sought to do it. Good things right things, strong things this young king was implementing. Then all of a sudden, chapter 20, verse 1, the Lord's saying, trust me even when the odds are stacked against you. It came about after this, after this implementing of the reforms by way of the judges in the land, it came about after this that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, together with some of the Munites, came to make war against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and reported to Jehoshaphat, saying, a great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, out of Aram or Syria. And behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is, in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat 
was afraid and turned his attention to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. Folks, can I just insert this? It's too late to prepare for war when war has been declared. It's too late to get ready for trouble when trouble has just now shown up. The exciting thing about this and this young 35-year-old's heart is that there had come to be instilled in his heart a reflex, knee-jerk reaction whether it had to do with things positive and pleasant and prosperous, or in this case now, as it had to do with something terrifying and perplexing. It was that no matter what the category was, he was going to seek the Lord. He would seek the Lord in peacetime, seek the Lord for government, Seek the Lord for implementing the instructions of the Lord from the generations past that he received from his great-great-grandfather David way back yonder. It was automatic to him. It was the way he did life. It, was, it, it wasn't God out here and me and my world right here, and every once in a while I'll send up a flag saying, can you help me? It was that he lived his life evidently seeking the Lord. He wasn't corny. He wasn't plastic. He wasn't any good at what he did. He was evidently very good at what he did, and he instilled in respect in the hearts of the people who followed him. It wasn't an unmanly thing to seek the Lord. It's what made him a great man. He sought the Lord. So when he gets this news, unlike any news he had ever received as a king in this position of leadership, when he gets this news that a great multitude, a great army, is invading the land, about to invade the land, it naturally struck fear in his heart. But instead of running off to the local club to get stoned or get high or get smashed to run from his trouble or to have pull a harem together and just have one big long Saturday night party with women, men, and whatever else would be going on, what did he do? He did what he always did. He went straight to heaven. He didn't do any sidebar trips. When, when something stirred his heart, either for good or for bad, he, he, just, he just went to the Lord. He sought the Lord. And you know what happened? As the people saw the king seeking the Lord, as they saw that kind of life operating in him, the people were willing and ready and were active in seeking the Lord too. That's why it can say, Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord because the king was seeking help from the Lord. Hey, dads, 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 it's our role to help our children and our wives understand where to go when trouble busts loose, where to go when good things happen, but where to go when trouble busts loose. We, we seek the Lord. They will find it easier to look to the Lord and seek the Lord if they see us seeking the Lord. It's not just the wife's role. It's not just the children's role to have a tender heart for God. It's the man's role. It's the manly man's role to understand that he is finite and God is infinite. And there are going to be some times in this life when we're going to need some help from 
the infinite perspective because our resources are limited. And that I would be no stranger to heaven, and heaven is no stranger to me. Because whether it's good, whether it's medium, or whether it's tough and hot, my heart is to seek the Lord. And then the ones around us are influenced by that same kind of thing as were the people here. I just want you to look closely, starting at verse 5. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. Okay, now who is he? He's not a prophet. He's not a preacher. He's not a paid religious person. He is a governmental head of state. He is a king. He is a ruler. He is the physical head over all the branches, all the dimensions of the southern kingdom. So as the head of state, government official, he stands in the house of the Lord and says in verse 6, O Lord, the God of our fathers, Art thou not God in the heavens? And art thou not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in thy hand so that no one can stand against you. Didst thou not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham thy friend forever? And they lived in it and have built thee a sanctuary there for thy name, saying, Should evil come upon us, the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine, we will stand before the house. We will stand before this house and before thee, for thy name is in this house, and cry to thee in our distress, and thou wilt hear and deliver us. And now behold the sons of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom thou didst not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt. They turned aside from them and did not destroy them. Behold how they are rewarding us by coming to drive us out from thy possession which thou hast given to us as an inheritance. O our God, wilt thou not judge them for we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us. Nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on thee. And all Judah was standing before the Lord with their infants, their wives, and their children. What an amazing scene. What a powerful picture that must have been. Here is the king with crown, regal robes, all of the appearance of his authority vested by the nation upon him. And here he is standing in the house of the Lord in the temple of Solomon, still there, not yet, not destroyed, wouldn't be for a while yet. It would still be there. And he's pouring his heart out. And he's reminding the Lord of what has happened before. 
and what had gone on up until this time. He declares the greatness of who God is, but then he also rehearses the circumstances that they find themselves in. I want to suggest to you the truster's reaction. The truster's reaction. Trust me when the odds are stacked against you. Here's a truster reacting to a situation where the odds are stacked against him. The first thing he does is that he declares the greatness of God. Folks, if we go first as trying to tell the Lord how bad the situation is, we're going to create a great big set of problems and a little bitty God. We're going to spend all our time talking about and thinking about how massive Goliath is and how little bitty the God over Goliath really is. It's an important precedent. It's that that knee-jerk reaction to trust the Lord, to revere the Lord over the troubles as God. And the the prophet will speak. The the one who declares the word from the Lord will say, "Don't, don't, don't fear or be dismayed this enemy coming against you. And the literal meaning is don't don't treat the enemy like it's God. Don't treat the enemy like it's all-powerful. You keep in mind who is most powerful. You keep solidly fixed in your mind who is the Lord over the kings of the earth. And that's what what Jehoshaphat says. Are you not not God in heavens? Are you not the ruler over all the kings of the earth? Is it not true that power and might are in thy hand so that no one can stand against thee? There are no odds. You face no odds. You have no odds against you because power and might are in your hand. The truster has to begin with the greatness of God. No matter what it is, no matter what you're facing today, no matter what's coming at you, no matter that it, it, that is that is a temporary situation, dire and desperate and confusing though it may be. But the great constant is our God in heaven is our Father, and He is the King over all the kings. Power and might lie in His hand, and He rules over all of the rulers of the earth. That, that's who He is. It starts there. It starts there. Now, folks, here's something else. This is Old Testament. We, we live in the New Testament. We live in the New Covenant. That means that, that the, the, the Old Testament law was something that the people had to, had to remember and they had to, had to work on to try to keep. But the Scripture would say in the New Covenant, the law is it, someplace else. It's not written in a book. The law of God now is written across our hearts. That, that now it is possible that no matter where we are, the Lord and his word also are. So there can be, there can be times when we face these situations and stuff coming up, and out of nowhere, it can just seem like bad news has hit, but what comes up simultaneously, maybe just a little after that, is, is the news. Wait a minute. God is good. God is strong. My father is able. My father hadn't missed this. My father loves me. My father cares about me. My father's going to get me through this. I'm going to trust him. That It's the spirit of the Lord going off inside you as these other things come into your natural man or the natural woman, the soulish part of us, the spirit of Jesus part of us inside us goes off with praise and thanksgiving and declaration of the factual realities of where we stand because we're held in the grip of our God. Count on it. We don't have to be in Jerusalem standing in the temple 
Paul would say, don't you know that your body as a Christian is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you're not your own. The Lord doesn't live inside stained glass. He's not stuck in Mary's lap. You know, Mary is the mother holding the baby Jesus, and, we, and that, that's who, where God is and who he is, or that he's on the cross. He's not still dying. He, he not, he's not dying anymore. He's not a baby anymore. Where is he? Christ in you. And where are you? Wherever you are, he is. Christ in you, your hope of glory. And in that part where you are, his spirit inside you can be reminding you and declaring out from your heart the greatness of who he is, that your spirit is rejoicing with his spirit, that you belong to him, that you are his, that he's carrying you and he's holding you. In the old covenant, it wasn't like that. The Holy Spirit would come on and then would lift and be there for a while for the conflict of purposes, for, for a season, and they could lift. But the great news now is that it is, it is permanently our possession as believers in Jesus, that the Spirit, this same Spirit, who's encouraging Jehoshaphat, who would come upon Jehaziel in a moment, is the Spirit who lives in us now. And if Jehoshaphat could make it through, and he was under the old covenant, then my goodness, you how to be able to make it through with triumph in this season, in this day, in this time, because of the Christ who lives within us. But then he not only reminds the Lord and declares the greatness of God, but he describes the circumstances at hand. He goes through these things and, and the, 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 these particular peoples, these ethnicities that were coming against Judah now were not allowed to be dealt with by Moses and the people that came out from the land. He's saying, look how they're rewarding us, verse 11, by coming to drive us out from thy possession, which thou hast given us. I want you to write this down somewhere. Write it on the back of the shirt in front of you if you don't have a piece of paper. <laughs> write it on your hand. The enemy wants what you have. The enemy wants what you have. The reality is that the Lord blesses those who honor him with true wealth. The Lord blesses those who honor him with true wealth. That doesn't mean he blesses us with all the money that is possible to make. But how far do we have to look to realize all the money in the world does not necessarily guarantee a happy family? That all the money in the world can't keep a husband and wife together. All the money in the world can't make a child love a father or a mother. The Lord blesses those who honor him with true wealth, with a good name, with a good reputation, with your spouse, with your kids, with your resources, with your job with your peace, and Satan wants what you have. It's his way of not only getting back at us, but it is his way of getting back at our Father, at the one who saved us, at the one who called us unto himself. Now, that may not be something that's all that obvious in the beginning, 
But as time goes on, there can come to be a realization that out of nowhere this opposition seemed to come. Out of nowhere, for no good reason, this assault seemed to come. The odds seem to be stacked against me, Lord, and I'm trying to do what's right. As Jehoshaphat was doing, I'm trying to honor you. Why this? Why now? For many of those situations, there's only one answer. Satan wants what you have. Jesus would say the devil comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. The good news is there's only one thing that backs the devil off. There's only one thing that pushes him back into a corner, and it's a bigger gun barrel. And the biggest of the biggest gun barrels, the Lord Jesus Christ, who went to the cross. Listen, he went to the cross, and when he went to the cross, covered it with the sins of the world. He was dying not for his own sins, but he was dying for the sins of the world. At that point in time, when he breathed his last and the last drop of blood poured from his body, he stripped Satan of his right to rule the hearts of men and women. He, he, he ripped out of Satan's hand the ability to always leverage you're a loser, you're sorry, you're bad, you're guilty, you're worse. God doesn't care about you. Jesus, when he rose from the grave, and in Revelation will say, I hold the keys of death and of hell. Who had that before? Satan had those keys in a sense before Jesus, in rising from the grave, having paid the price for the sins of humanity, stripped Satan of his authority to rule the human race. Only Jesus, only Jesus did that. Do you hear me? Only Jesus did that. No other moral reformer, no other so-called great religious leader did that. That is why the most profane name in the United States of America in many quarters is the name Jesus. You can speak any name. You can call forth the favor of demonic forces and all manner of evil forces, and some portions of our leadership won't even blink. But you let somebody walk in a room, not even saying a word, but just have J-E-S-U-S, period, on their shirt. And they're taken to the principal's office or sent to the dean's office or the, 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 the head of, head of uh, human resources wants to talk to them. Why is that? It's because the name of Jesus Christ scares the hell out of the devil. And those who follow him and those who are have no ownership, have no sense of responsibility in their own right to who the Lord is. They're terrified of the name Jesus, scared to death of what the power of the Spirit of Jesus can do in a human heart, determined to shut it down. Why? Because they're scared spitless. Boy, did I say that. But there's no other reason. Why would a kindergartner with a cross around her neck, 
Why would a seventh grader with a Bible or Jesus, why, why would that be a threat? It's as if they walked in with some kind of thermonuclear North Korean-made device and the little child has walked in with their finger on the trigger. And all they did was walk in with the name Jesus. That's got to tell us something. It's got to tell us that Satan and all those who are blindly following his dictates, the prince of the power of the air in this life, only fears one name, one person, and it is the person of the living Lord Jesus Christ who is alive in your chest and who brings his thoughts and his heart up through your mind and out through your emotions and out through your life. So without having to be dangerous in the sense of a criminal, you just let the light inside you shine. And in many cases, there's blessing, but in some cases, you strike terror into PhDs' hearts. You strike absolute terror into someone who controls, sits as at least temporary control of organizations. Just one name. There is therefore no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. And that's the name Jesus. Okay? Now, somewhere or another, we left Jehoshaphat back over here and we ran cross country, but I. I just can't apologize for that. I just can't. It's, I believe it's the truth. It's the truth. It's the truth. And again, you know, again why, why are people so terrified? As smart as they may be, why are they so terrified over the name Jesus? If it isn't, if it isn't that, there's power. There's power. There's power. In that name. So, verse 12, let's see if we can recover some of this. Here's our prayer, his prayer. O oh, our God, wilt thou not judge them? Will you not deal with them? The ones coming against us, will you not deal with them? For we are powerless before this great multitude. Nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on thee. I'm telling you, there's just so much good news in these little these couple of phrases from Jehoshaphat that'll just kind of make you want to jump a couple of pews. In there. This is a man trusting God. This is a man wanting to please the Lord with a level of faith working in his heart. But you know what he says? He says, we are powerless. We look at this, we take an inventory of the resources, us versus them, and we realize that we are powerless before them. And then the next thing, I just love this. He said, Lord, this is the head of state. This is the president. This is, this, is, this is the one who holds all earthly authority in that sense. Here's what he says. On top of that, we don't know what to do. We don't know what to do. For you to know that you don't know what to do 
doesn't mean at all that you're not trusting the Lord who does know what to do. For you to declare and admit we're powerless. I don't know how we'll survive this. If it's just us, we're toast. Permission to be that honest. Powerless. Now, now what if you were there? There within in your family. You, you got your wife, or you're standing next to your husband, or you got a baby in your arms, and then you got, you know, a few children stair step down this way, and you're all there. Because that's what it says in verse 13. And all Judah was standing before the Lord with their wives, with their infants, with their children. You're standing there, and you've come to this place in hopes that you're going to get some kind of encouraging word. And you've heard the rumor that we've got enemies on the boundary. And you've come there to seek the Lord, but you've also come there hoping that goodness gracious, the ones who are leading us have heard something good. And then you hear the man himself say, we don't have enough army. We don't have enough weapons. We don't have enough what it takes before this group. And on top of that, Lord, we don't know what to do. Go back to 2 Chronicles 7, 14. Just remember that. I'll just reference it. Jehoshaphat is standing in the same place where his great-great-great-grandfather Solomon was standing when Solomon repeated the words of the Lord. For the Lord said, If my people who call by my name will humble themselves and pray, turn from their wicked ways and seek my face, I will hear their prayer. I'll forgive their sin. And I'll heal their land. The picture of public humbling on the part of this king. If he was to humble himself before the Lord, then it gave way for the people to humble themselves before the Lord. Nobody running to hide in a bunker. Nobody running to try to secure a, a, a personal police detail, that they're standing there with everybody they got, everybody in their life standing there. And they hear the king say, we're powerless and we don't want to do. But then, but it says, but our eyes are on you, Lord. Do you get that? The, the, Lord, the Lord's not waiting for us to come up with some, some rocket scientist plan to fix ourselves. When we come before him with humility and a sense of brokenness and honesty, Lord, the odds are stacked against me. And on top of that, I don't know what to do. Instead of the Lord just saying, oh, well, so much for you. Let me find somebody else that's a little sharper. It wasn't that at all. Read further. Verse 14. Then in the midst of the assembly, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, of the sons of Asaph, and he said, Listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, Do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude. For the battle is not yours, but the Lord's, but God's. 
tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, they'll come up by the ascent of Z's, and you'll find them at the end of the valley in front of the wilderness. It's as if the Lord said, I know where they are. I know where they're sleeping. I know where they're eating. I know where all the tents are. I know where they're getting water. I know every last one of them and where they are, and this is where you're going to find them. There are no surprises with me. Well, you know, I'm sure he meant that. He didn't say it exactly that way. But telling them where they were, telling them where to find them. Verse 17, you need not fight in this battle. Station yourselves. Stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out to face them, for the Lord is with you. Mm. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a very loud voice. i got to say this. If there hadn't been some work done, if there hadn't been a precedent set before this happened, this prophetic voice declaring the heart of the Lord might have never even been listened to, any attention paid to it. But because they, before they ever got to this place, the people had gotten from their king a heart that seeks the Lord and a heart that desires to obey the Lord, that the atmosphere of God was welcome in the presence of the people. Instead of when this guy pipes up and says, Thus saith the Lord, somebody says, Just carry him out, escort him to the edge. Instead of that, the Spirit of God going off in Jehaziel was touching something of the deep hearts of the people who were herein. Starting with the king. The king bore witness immediately that that was a word from the Lord, that God was speaking. Others around the word the Lord was speaking. The king responded by bowing. And the people responded by bowing. Verse 20. They rose early in the morning, went out to the wilderness of Tekoa, and when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, O Judah and heavens of Jerusalem, put your trust in the Lord your God and you'll be established. Put your trust in his prophets and succeed. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who sang to the Lord and those who praised him in holy attire as they went out before the army and said, give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness is everlasting. Now think about that. Pastor Rick and Josh, Monica, these others up here, put them out in front of the swords and the arrows and the chariots and the catapults and the scores and scores of armed men because they're saying, we're not trusting in horses and chariots. We're not trusting in armed men. We're trusting in the God who has spoken to our hearts. 
We're trusting in the God who has the ability to shut things down and stand things up. We're trusting in the God who has delivered his heart to us, and we're embracing what his heart has been revealed to us. That's what we're doing. Verse 22, and when, and when they began singing and praising, the Lord set ambushes against the sons of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so they were routed. For the, Here's what he meant by that. For the sons of Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, destroying them completely. And when they had finished with the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. When Judah came to the lookout of the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, and behold, they were corpses. The multitude had turned to corpses lying on the ground, and no one had escaped. And when Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found much among them, including goods, garments, valuable things, which they took for themselves, more than they could carry. And there were three days taking the spoil because there was so much. So how did the Lord fight that battle? He, he, just, he just had the ability to turn people against each other. He didn't have to send Michael or Gabriel. He didn't have to send some, some mighty armed man. He, he has the ability, folks. He has the ability to get inside the brains of people. He has the ability to get inside the emotions of people. And whatever it takes to defend you, whatever it takes for him to come through for you, is not going to be bound by just what we in the natural realm perceive to be reality. He's the God who knows no limits. He's the God who, when we trust in him, activates that which he knows is the best, the most efficient, the most precise way of accomplishing his will for his people that there could ever be. He is God and we are not. So we trust him. We trust him. Don't know what the odds may be against you. Don't know what the frame may be, the package may be. And you may, that may be like that word, that verse right there that, that, that Jehoshaphat spoke, that's your verse. That's your verse. There are so many, we're powerless before them. And then that next part, and I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. My eyes are on you. I'm looking to you, Lord. I'm listening for you, Lord. I'm waiting for your instruction, Lord. If you tell me to sit and stay and do nothing good, because I just read this one the first time I ever saw it in 2 Chronicles verse, chapter 20. It talks about the Lord said, this battle is not yours, it's mine to fight. I'm good with that, Lord. I'm good with that if that's what you choose. But then there are other times when he gives specific instructions. Turn this way. Go that way. Reach out to this relationship. Here's the strategy. Here's the plan. But the point is, when we trust him, 
when we're trusting him, we immediately move ourselves and our immediate circumstance into another whole dimension of destiny and possibility. That I'm not just trusting in what I can see or hear or touch and feel. I'm trusting you, Lord. And where my heart gets weak, where my faith begins to strain, Lord, I'm asking you by your spirit to pump that up in me. I need some help here. Helper, would you help me? And Jesus would say, it's to your advantage that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the helper will not come. Jesus, in one place at one time, on planet earth now the spirit able to be in every one of the believers wherever we are and that he's doing the work in our hearts he's doing the work in our emotions he's strengthening us he's speaking to us he's causing us to be open to what his leadership would be my sheep remember that one John 10 my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. But in all your ways, acknowledge him. and He will make your path straight. Trust me. Trust me. Even when the odds are stacked against you. Because the one in whom we trust has no odds against him. Amen. Lord, we ask you to take what we've heard, to take what we have felt. That is from you to our hearts at this moment in time in our lives. And write it across the tablet of our hearts, Lord deeply impressing upon us, settling it, settling it more deeply than maybe ever before that you are worthy of our trust. That the things that are happening right now are no surprise to you. There's nothing that can ever confound you about the circumstances of our lives. There's nothing you don't know. There's no place you aren't. There's nothing that you cannot do. So the best we can, and by the power of your Spirit strengthening us, we say to you, I trust you, Lord. I trust you. I trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.